Chapter 10 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 10 They did not go through the contents of Sir Godfrey's diary that night. They were both too happy in their immediate present to think of anything but the new happiness that each had revealed to the other, and so they wisely left the things of tomorrow to wait on the coming of tomorrow. But when Grace had read the few pregnant and piteous sentences and interpreted them in the light of her own knowledge and with the aid of her strange inherited power, she was, if possible, even more firmly convinced of the guilt of the man whom she happily believed to be only her uncle than Harold himself was. At the same time, she heartily endorsed Mr. Barthgate's opinion that, for the time being at least, it was absolutely necessary for Harold to keep both his hatred and his suspicions of the professor completely out of sight. No good and possibly great harm would be done by even allowing him to guess that his conduct was in any way suspected, and so, though it was by far the hardest of the many hard tasks that Harold Enstone had set himself to, he crushed down his desperate desire to take the law into his own hands, and, as he put it, consented to play the hypocrite for the first, and as he devoutly hoped, the last time in his life. It must be confessed, as Grace laughingly told him one night after a dinner at which the professor and Mr. Denyer, now almost his other self, were guests, that he played the part excellently, but that was due to the versatility of his education, and to the iron will which a youth of adventure and peril had endowed him. He treated Jenner Halkine on exactly the same footing as before Sir Godfrey's death. He had never been on really cordial terms with him, and, of course, this fact made his task and the keen-witted doctor's deception all the easier. He entered with great apparent interest into his various schemes for giving effect to his dead friend's wishes, and gave every assistance in his power to expedite the process of probate. But when the will was proved, and Halkine entered upon his trusteeship, there came to Enstone Manor one fine morning, about a fortnight after the probate, a long blue envelope, the contents of which caused Harold to fling the paper down on the breakfast table and jump to his feet with an oath, for which he promptly begged his startled wife's pardon. "'What on earth is the matter, Harold, dear?' she said, turning pale, for she had never heard a word from his lips that could offend a woman's ear. "'I beg your pardon a thousand times, Grace,' he replied, colouring to his eyes. I ought to be kicked, swearing before a woman, but I think you'll admit that this is about enough to make a fellow forget himself. Would you believe it? That scoundrel Halkine, I really refuse to think of him any longer as any connection to you, has gone and realized a million out of the state investments on his sole authority, and without even consulting Barthgate or myself. A million, said Grace, with a little gasp, as she began to realize what evil such a man as her uncle could work with such a huge sum of money at his command. A million? That's a tremendous amount, isn't it? But has he the right to do that by himself? I'm afraid he took very good care to make that all right before he sent my poor father to his suicide's grave, replied Harold bitterly. Still, for all that, I'm off up to town as soon as I can get a train, and have it out with him in some way if it's only for the satisfaction of doing it. He's evidently thrown off the mask now, and I may as well do the same." Why, the rascal hasn't even a single one of his schemes ready to spend a penny upon honestly. So now, dear, go and get packed up, and tell Jackson to put my usual things together, 
and will catch the midday train from Newcastle. I'll see about the carriage, and send Simmons to the post office with a wire to Mrs. Porter. No, I think we'll go to Brown's, as the old governor always did when he paid a flying visit like this. Are you really serious, Harold? she asked, rising from the table, for they had just finished breakfast when the ill-omened letter arrived. Never more so, dear, he replied with a little forward movement of the chin which told her unmistakably that he meant business. Very well, then, she said quietly, yet wondering what sort of consequence such a journey might have. If you are, I will come with you. Perhaps I may be of some use. They dined in the dignified and quietly luxurious peace of Brown's Hotel, last survival of the ancient hostelries of London, which many a generation of county people have made their other home. And as soon as they had finished breakfast the next morning, Harold took a hansom and drove to Bedford Mansions, which was Professor Halkine's town address. He found him sitting over the fruit and sweetmeats at the end of a late oriental breakfast. There was another man at the table with him, and Harold, by some swift intuition, instantly recognized that he was in the presence of no ordinary earth-dweller. Never in all his wanderings had he stood face to face with such a personality as this. As they both rose from the table, Halkine held out his hand and said in his most genial voice, "'Ah, good morning, Mr. Enstone. You have given us a pleasant surprise. We were just talking about you.' Allow me to have the honor to present you to my colleague, and now co-trustee, Dr. Izorama, whose name, I am sure, cannot be unfamiliar to you. My friend, this is the Mr. Enstone, son and heir of our lamented friend and brother, Godfrey Enstone. Harold's muscles were quivering under the great effort of will that alone prevented him striking the smooth-spoken liar and murderer to the floor. But he managed just to touch his hand and say, Good morning, civilly. Then he turned, and his eyes met those of Isaac Ramo. He saw a face that was at once the most beautiful and the most piteously impassive he had ever seen. There was something unearthly in its beauty, something almost devilish in its utter lack of human expression. The skin was a clear, pale olive. The features were of the purest type of the ancient Egyptian aristocracy. It seemed, indeed, to Harold's wondering eyes that he might have stepped straight out of one of the wall paintings at Luxor or Karnak. His hair which fell almost to his shoulders, was pure white, yet thick and soft as silk. His brows were still black, and under them shone a pair of eyes so intensely and brilliantly blue that, unless their owner so willed, it was difficult to look into them for more than a few moments together. Such was Isaac Ramal, reader of thoughts and searcher of souls, the outcast adept of the holy mysteries, who had broken the most awful vows a mortal can take for the sake of a golden-haired, dark-eyed English girl of twenty. To the world in general, he was better known as Professor of English Languages and Literature in the University of London, and the most brilliant Oriental scholar in Europe. There is no need to record the conversation that occupied the best part of the next hour. Suffice it to say that from the moment Isaac Romal began to speak on the subject of his friend's vast projects for the advancement of true science, and the inestimable benefit Sir Godfrey had conferred upon humanity by enabling him to carry out, his anger began to melt away and the real object of his visit seemed to recede into the background. Even his conviction as to Halkine's guilt gradually became fainter. He was also bound to admit the fact that he was able to secure as co-trustee not only a man of absolutely blameless reputation, but also one of the most distinguished scholars in the world, went a very long way towards discounting the probability of fraudulent intention. The magnificent plans that were outlined so distinctly by them completely dazzled him, 
and he ended by feeling himself almost wholly in sympathy with the very proceedings that he had come to denounce as an insolent fraud. And yet, when he had left the flat and was walking slowly westward, lost in puzzling thought, with every step he took the spell that had been cast over him became weaker and weaker, and his original view of Halkine and all his works came out stronger and stronger. When he met Grace at lunch, he was one of the angriest and most bewildered men in London. Of course, he told her exactly what had happened, and when he had done so, she said in a voice which betrayed not a little concern, I am sorry to hear about Dr. Ramal, Harold. Very sorry. He is really something very different to what he appears to the world. Something infinitely more powerful and dangerous than a mere scholar or scientist. What in the name of goodness do you mean, dear? asked her husband, a trifle alarmed by the seriousness of her tone. Do you know anything about this man? Too much to give you very much hope of success against my uncle, I'm afraid, dear, she replied gravely. This doctor, or as he should be called, Lama, Isaac Ramal is, or was, one of the Tibetan adepts. Of course, you must have learned something about them on your travels, and you know the extraordinary powers with which they are credited. Well, my uncle told me several times that all this is actually true of Isaac Ramal. I have myself seen him do apparently just for amusement, the most incomprehensible things. Tying a knot in a loop of string, for instance, and turning a closed bag inside out without opening it. Once he told me the whole course of my thoughts for twelve hours without a mistake. I hate the man, if he really is an ordinary man, and I am afraid I fear him even more than hate him. Whatever you do, Harold, for heaven's sake, don't let him come near me, or I dare not guess what the consequences might be. You can be pretty certain of that, dear he said a trifle grimly. I have heard of these fellows in their own country, and I know for a fact that they do some of them possess powers that we have no notion of. And, he went on with a laugh, you may rest quite assured that I don't want anyone coming around reading my wife's inmost thoughts when I don't even know them myself. I don't think many of them are hidden from you, dear, she smiled in reply, but quite seriously. I should absolutely dread meeting this man, especially now that he has allied himself with my uncle in this terrible piece of work. I'll take very good care you don't, he said with confidence that was greater than his knowledge. But now, can you tell me what the actual connection between these two worthies is? As far as I know, it began when he was twenty-five or so. He went as naturalist with an expedition which attempted to get into the Forbidden City. Every man was killed except my uncle, and he was spared because Isaac Ramal, who was then very high up in the cult, took a fancy to him or saw some possibilities in him, and claimed him as a disciple. He remained in the monastery with him for three years, and then they both got away. How, or why, I don't know. That is all my uncle ever told me, and I never could get him to say another word on the subject. They went out shopping in the afternoon, and just as their Victoria pulled up in front of Jay's, they heard a familiar voice say, Good afternoon. I heard from Halkine this morning that you were in town and I was going to do myself the pleasure of calling upon you. They looked up, and there stood Mr. Bonhomme Denyer, faultlessly dressed in the most recent of male modes, and looking the very incarnation of prosperous respectability. Harold helped his wife out, and they shook hands. As they moved towards the shop door, Mr. Denyer muttered, just loud enough for him to hear, Will you have a couple of hours to spare before you go back to Endstone? I am very anxious to have a chat with you on a subject which concerns you very deeply. Harold caught a note of real earnestness in his voice, and as he looked up quickly he saw a look of earnestness, almost of anxiety, 
on the lawyer's face that convinced him that he really had something of importance to say. Before he replied, he turned to his wife and said laughingly, I don't suppose you want me to come and do penance at the shrine of St. Maud, do you? If you don't mind, while you are seeing things and trying on, I'll take a turn with Mr. Denyer and come back for you in half an hour. I think you would better make it a couple of hours, dear, she smiled in reply. I have two dresses to try on, and ever so much else to do. Then in that case, he said, turning to Denyer, we may as well take the carriage and drive down to the Traveller's, and have a smoke and a chat there. I will be delighted, replied the lawyer, raising his hat again and bowing as Grace went into the shop. In ten minutes they were seated in a secluded corner of the almost deserted smoking-room, for it was now late August and clubland was almost a wilderness. When they had got their cigars going, and the waiter had put half a bottle of the famous Traveller's Port and a couple of glasses before them, Harold turned to his guest and said, Now, Mr. Denyer, I am entirely at your service. You can speak as freely here as you could in your own office. There is no one within earshot, and those two or three old stagers are either all fast asleep, or very soon will be. Exactly, replied the lawyer, in a low but perfectly distinct tone, such as he and his kind assume by instinct when they approach confidential matters. To save time, and get to the point at once, I will begin by saying that I want to talk to you about a matter which concerns you and your fortunes, and something even more than them very closely. Then you can only refer to my late father's death, and that extraordinary will he made, said Harold, putting down his glass and looking him straight in the eyes. Yes, that is it, replied Mr. Denyer, returning his look for a second, and then dropping his eyelids. To begin with, I am going to ask you to give me your word that nothing I shall say shall go beyond this room, even to your wife, without my consent. Certainly, answered Harold, after a moment's thought. His instinct told him that Halkine's friend and partner, perhaps his accomplice, would not speak like that without pretty good reason, and so he determined to take the risk. Yes, he continued, you have my word on that. And now, what is it you have to tell me? End of chapter 10 Recording by Todd